it's hard to appreciate the significance of the Reformation unless you understand the darkness that existed at the time when the Reformation took place and praise God for His work uh, through that season in history. Well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Our text for today is John chapter 1, verses 6 to 13, where we are confronted with the shocking reality of how mankind responded to the arrival of the Messiah. This section, as we mentioned last week, is in the middle of the prologue, which spans verses 1 to 18. And in this prologue, John introduces us to the themes that he will unpack throughout the rest of the book. As we saw last week in verses 1 to 5, John proclaims to us the true nature of Jesus Christ, that He is God. In verses 14 to 18, we'll see next week the revelation of Jesus Christ, namely that He reveals God to us. But what we see here in verses 6 to 13 explains to us the responses to Jesus the Christ. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him Known. We see here that in verses 4 and 5, Jesus is called the light. And that is further emphasized in verses 7 through 9, where the apostle wants to make clear that John the Baptist is not the light, but that Jesus is the true light who is coming into the world. 
The title of this message is Post Tenebras Lux, which is a Latin phrase which means after darkness, light. This is a motto that is embedded in stone on the International Monument for the Reformation in Geneva, Switzerland, otherwise known as the Reformation Wall. This monument commemorates the work of God spanning the 15th and 17th centuries, which saw the recovery of the biblical doctrine, excuse me, the biblical gospel and many other aspects of sound doctrine throughout Europe. The Reformation was the hinge or a hinge on which the world has turned because the Reformation was not contained within churches. It had a direct and an immediate impact on every sphere of life from government to science, the arts, education, and beyond. Post Tenebras Luke's became the motto of the Reformation because the light of the truth penetrated a land that had been cast in darkness due to the corruption and the control of the Roman Catholic Church. For centuries, the church had kept people in every nation uneducated and ignorant of the truth. They controlled people by not allowing the word of God to be read or taught in the language that people spoke, which made it easy to promote false doctrines like purgatory, penance, and indulgences. Many priests didn't even know what the scripture said. They just had scripts of Latin that they read, not really understanding anything. Just imagine yourself coming to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for decades to listen to a preacher that you don't understand. And you do that because you are afraid. If you don't, you're going to spend eons in purgatory. And because the church was interlaced with the civil government, if you didn't submit to the church's authority, you could be cast out of favor in the community, or worse, be put to death. So fear and ignorance kept people from questioning the authorities. In a land of such darkness, it seemed that there wasn't much hope that the national and international powers could ever be held to account. But in 1517, a man named Martin Luther, a German professor of theology, began to call into question the teaching on indulgences and the Pope's ability to forgive sin. And on October 31st, 1517, he posted a document that we now call his 95 Theses, which he intended to be used for academic discussion. But that document was translated into German and spread around the common people, and that lit a fire that could not be stopped. We celebrate that day, October 31st, as Reformation Day, because it was that particular act by Martin Luther that the Lord used to, to cast light on the world, and as the world turned from one day to another, that let light spread farther and brighter and led to the transformation of lives and churches and nations. Indeed, we could say even the world. Through Though the posting of his 95 Theses was really the, the catalyst that launched the Reformation formally, 
the singular most effective weapon that explains the transformation that took place is the Word of God, the Scripture. In that day, the Bible was only available in Latin, which very few could read. In fact, it was a crime to have the Word of God in vulgar tongue, which is what most people spoke. German, French, English, and so on. But when Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, and William Tyndale translated the Bible into English, and Jack the Frenchman, whose name I can't pronounce, translated it into French, all hell didn't break loose. The Word of God broke loose, and people began to see the light. Pastors began to preach in the language of the people, and the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed. And the many errors and follies of the Roman Catholic Church were denounced and dismantled. But not everybody received the light. There were many who hated the light and suppressed the light in their own hearts and worked to suppress the light in society. The Roman Catholic Church, with which Martin Luther initially tried to reform and bring back to the Scripture, was corrupt to its core, and they refused to submit to the Word of God. The priests who began to preach in the language of the people were cast out of their churches and banned. The theological battles turned into physical battles, and many leaders like William Tyndale and John Knox and many others were exiled from their countries lest they experience the consequence of death. Indeed, many Protestants were put to death by beheading or being burned at the stake as heretics. But despite the persecution and the trouble and the bloodshed, the Word of God could not be stopped. That match that was lit by Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, became a wildfire that brought the light of the Word of God to the world, even down to us today. After the darkness, where the light of truth had been obscured by tradition and false religion, God caused the light to shine. And it still shines today in every church that proclaims the Word of God. But the Reformation was not the first time that this had happened. Post Tenebrock's Luke's is a pattern that we see throughout history, especially the history of Israel. But I would submit to you that the greatest event in history, which could be most aptly described by that phrase, post Tenebrock's Luke's, is right here in our text. After the darkness of 400 years of silence from God, and after the Jews had developed their own form of Judaism that eclipsed the word of God, the light of Christ came into the world. And so here in verses 16 to 13, the apostle John unveils for us the preparation for the light in verses 6 to 9, and the response to the light in verses 10 to 13. And this passage, which gives us more, in some ways, a historical perspective of what was the response, prepares us for how do people respond even today? 
and it enables us to understand how we can be faithful in our evangelism as well. Well, as we look at this text, consider the first section where John introduces us to the purpose of God to prepare the world to receive the light. Look again at verses 6 to 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The coming of the Messiah had been long prophesied to be preceded by one who would come to prepare the way. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he, excuse me, he will prepare the way before me. This messenger is the man that we are introduced to here. And his name, as we see, is John. The other Gospels call him John the Baptist, but the Gospel of John, the Apostle, doesn't do that. In fact, one commentator rightly notes that if John were to give the prophet John a title, it would be John the Witness. It's John's role as a witness to the Messiah that the Apostle focuses on, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But here we're simply introduced to this man whom God sent, and Notice what it says in verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Why does John say that? Why does he emphasize this point? Because it's pretty obvious in the first five verses that Jesus is the light. So why does he say that John is not the light? Well, John the Baptist had a rather significant ministry that drew thousands upon thousands to him. Matthew 3.5 says that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. John was a prophet and he baptized people as a sign of repentance and preparation for the Messiah. His message was repent for the kingdom of God is near. And baptism was a way of symbolizing or demonstrating one's commitment to repent. John 3 tells us that as Jesus' ministry increased, John's ministry decreased. But his ministry didn't die out. If you think about life without internet or television or radio, news spread rather slowly. So when he was proclaiming his message of repentance, that proclamation began to spread around the known world, even beyond Israel, to the Jews who lived throughout the Roman Empire. And then as Jesus was ministering, the news about him began to spread. But the news about John and the news about Jesus were like waves in the ocean that went out slowly and it took quite some time for the gospel of Jesus to overtake the message about John. We see this dynamic in Acts chapter 17, or excuse me, verse Acts chapter 19, where Paul arrives in Ephesus some 20 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Paul came across some disciples of Jesus. And he says there in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? And they said, no, we, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how they received the Holy Spirit. These people that Paul encountered were called disciples, which means that they had heard about Jesus and determined in their heart to follow Jesus, but what they had heard was very limited. They were so far away from Israel that the news of all that took place traveled so slow and was so limited that they just hadn't received it even after 20 years. And so it wasn't until Paul arrived there that they came to understand the relationship between John and Jesus. Now, while most disciples of John, followers of John, eventually became disciples of Jesus, not all of them did. There's even a group today who still consider themselves followers of John the Baptist. They're called Mandaeans. So it was necessary for the Apostle John to make it explicitly clear that John is not the light. Stop following John. Well, let's consider John the prophet's ministry. The, the purpose of John's prophetic ministry was really twofold. First, it was to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of the Messiah so they might receive him. And second, it was to point to the Messiah so that when he came, people would know exactly who he is. We see the first purpose to prepare people for the Messiah in verses 19 to 28 of this chapter. And for now, just to get a glimpse of that, look at verse 23. John says, as he's speaking with the Pharisees and Levites, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. There he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, to explain who he is and what his mission is. I am nobody. I'm just a voice. And the voice is saying, prepare for the Messiah. After 400 years of prophetic silence, the Lord sent John to soften the hearts and quicken the minds of his people in preparation for the coming Messiah. And then the second purpose of his ministry is on display in verses 29 to 34. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We don't know exactly how many years John ministered as a prophet before Jesus came on the scene. But the moment that Jesus arrives, John had the joy and the privilege of heralding to all those around the arrival of the Messiah. Not only who he was, Jesus, but what he came to do. Take away the sin of the world. Now we'll study those sections in depth, of course, when we get to them. But coming back to our text, the significance and spread of John the Baptist's ministry made it necessary for the apostle to introduce John the Baptist as a prime witness in his case that Jesus is the Messiah. And then look at verse 7 and notice that word witness. Verse 7, he says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. The noun and the verb forms of this word are usually translated either witness or testimony or testify. Now, those words are found over 40 times in the Gospel of John. And combining that with the purpose of the Gospel, which is stated in 20, chapter 20, verse 31, helps us understand that when we read the Gospel of John, 
we are really reading a courtroom drama. Every time we sit and read and study the Gospel of John, it's as though we're sitting in a jury box, listening to arguments and testimony for the purpose of coming to a decision. In this case, the issue is not a matter of guilt or innocence, but a matter of identity and significance. The question before the court is, who is the Messiah? As we walk through the gospel, we'll hear from the following witnesses, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, God the Father, the Old Testament, the works that Jesus did, the crowds, and the Apostle John. By the time we get to the end of the book, the testimony of these seven witnesses make a case that really cannot be denied. Who is the Christ? The Christ is Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Now notice again what it says in verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. John came to bear witness so that all might believe through Him. I want you to see afresh the grace of God in this. Note that the grace of God, in the grace of God, He did not limit the proclamation of the, com- of the coming Messiah to a few. Now, of course, in an age of, uh, where the fastest way to travel on land is a horse, John's ministry had its limitations. But the purpose was so that all might believe. This is the universal call of salvation. Most of you know that at this church, we teach the sovereignty of God in salvation, which means that in the mercy and grace of God, rather than leaving sinners to their will, which is enslaved to sin, He extends grace by choosing to save some of His own free will. But sometimes people take that doctrine and run to unbiblical conclusions, saying that we don't need to evangelize because God will save who He wants to save no matter what we do. Or we shouldn't evangelize because people are dead in sin, so it doesn't matter. Well, the problem with those ideas, among other uh, other reasons, is because they go against what God Himself does. God doesn't limit the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't limit the exposure of the light of Christ. Did you notice what it said there in verse 9? The true light, which gives light to everyone. Our God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. So he is extravagant with his offer of the gospel. So the purpose of John's ministry is so that all might believe through him. But consider the other part of that, that all might believe through him. Think about this. You and I are so used to this concept of belief that we can gloss over this without really thinking about it. But I find it amazing that the appropriate response and necessary response to the coming Messiah is to believe in Him. 
to people who were under the law, John's message was not, prepare for the coming Messiah by cleaning up your life and making yourself acceptable to Him. To a people who were expecting the Christ to be a conquering king, John's message was not, prepare for the Messiah to join His army and get ready for battle. No, the purpose of John's prophetic ministry was to prepare the nation of Israel for the Messiah that they were not expecting. And because the Christ would not be what they had been told to expect by their leaders, John's ministry was to prepare their hearts, the hearts of the people, to believe in the one that God sent, not the one that they wanted. In principle, this is really what was the responsibility of all the prophets of old. There were always those false prophets who would say to the people, and especially to the kings, whatever they thought the leaders would want to hear, they would tickle their ears and lie about promising success and blessing and prosperity. They knew that they could flatter the king and get away with it. It was the true prophets who usually brought a message of condemnation and judgment. And they were rejected and despised. And you know what, beloved? The same is true today. There's lots of teaching and preaching out there that leads people to believe that Jesus exists for them, for their welfare, for their happiness and success and prosperity. Many people embrace the idea that Jesus fits their desires and their hopes. But the Word of God declares to us the real Jesus so that we would lay aside our preferences and embrace the true Christ. To believe in Jesus is to affirm and embrace what God says about Him and His purpose to save us from our sin, adopt us into His family, and grant us eternal life. John the Baptist here is the first voice that points us to Jesus as the Christ who takes away the sin of the world. And that is the message that we must proclaim to a dark world today. Well, having introduced us to the purpose of God to prepare for the coming of Christ, John then moves to prepare us for the three different responses to Christ's coming. Throughout the gospel, we'll see these responses unfold, and these are the same responses that we see in the world today. What we see in verses 10 to 13 is John moves from the most common response to the least common response. Consider the first most common response. Ignorance and apathy. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, of course, speaking of the true light. Yet the world did not know him. And this speaks to the time before, during, and after the coming of Christ. When it says he was in the world, he refers to the fact that the testimony of the light of God has always been present in creation. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And we're familiar with Psalm 19, verse 1, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. 
Not only does creation reveal to all mankind the divine nature and the power and the glory of God, but the Lord also graciously used Israel to spread the knowledge of Yahweh to the nations. When a number of us went to Israel back in April, one of the first lessons that we learned is how God so oriented the geography in that region that when the nations wanted to pass from one landmass to another, they had to pass through Israel. And they learned about Israel's God. Then when Israel was exiled due to their disobedience, they were spread far and wide by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And there were some Jews among them, like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, who gave testimony to Yahweh by their faithfulness, even to the point where Nebuchadnezzar had made a a public proclamation honoring Yahweh. Remember that when Jesus was born, there were wise men from the east who came to give gifts to the newborn king. Though we often think that there were three of them because there were three gifts that were given, the truth is it was probably a large retinue of people with camels and servants to care for the wise men, however many there were during their multi-month travels. And no doubt as they encountered people along the way, they made it known where they were going and why, namely to give gifts to the king of Israel that had been born. All this to say that when John writes that the creator of all was in the world, he means that there was ample testimony to his existence and majesty and glory. A great many people in the world knew that there was a God named Yahweh. But as John says here, they didn't know him. So the response of the world to their creator, ignorance and apathy. With very few exceptions, they might have known something about him, but they didn't know the truth about him. And whatever they heard about him, they were apathetic. They just didn't care. The same is true today. You talk to people on the street or you go on campuses today and you will encounter people who have certainly heard the name of Jesus, but they are ignorant of the truth about Jesus. And frankly, they just don't care. There are even some people who think they know Jesus. They find him attractive and they're glad to say that they follow him, but in reality, they are ignorant of who he really is. The Jesus that they know is more a figment of their imagination than the one who came in history and is proclaimed in Scripture. The same goes when you look around the world today. As I mentioned last week, as as we consider the world today, there are billions and billions of people who know the name Jesus. They have some idea that there was a man named Jesus in time and space and history who taught and who was a, a wonderful man, but there's really complete ignorance and apathy about him. No one really cares to actually know the truth about him. So for this reason, when we proclaim the gospel, it's vital that we don't limit what we say uh, about Jesus to something like God sent Jesus to die for our sin. If that's as much as you say about Jesus, you leave people in their ignorance about the reality of who Jesus is. We need to be clear that Jesus is God and he's worthy of glory and praise and worship. 
And the right response to the message of the Gospel is not just belief in what Jesus did in history, but in who Jesus is. So let's make sure that we don't prevent people from having true faith because they don't know who He is. So ignorance and apathy is the response of the world. Look at verse 11 to see the response of God's own people, the Jews. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Here John narrows his focus from the world to Israel. He does that geographically and he does that relationally. When it says there, he came to his own, that is a phrase used two other times in this gospel. In both other times, it refers to a man's own house. For example, in chapter 19, verse 27, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he entrusts the care of his mother to the apostle John. And it says there, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Same phrase. So John seems to be saying here that Christ, the Lord, came to his own home, to the land of Israel, the, the place where he chose to make his home for thousands of years. This is where he manifested his presence through the tabernacle and in the temple. This is where he promised to establish his everlasting kingdom. So if there was anywhere in the world where the Messiah should be welcomed and received and celebrated, it was the land of Israel. But then he goes on to say, and his own people did not receive him. People there is implied, and he uses the same phrase as the first part of the verse, his own, but he changes the gender from neuter to masculine, and that indicates he's moving from the land to the people. What John describes here is a travesty. We've no doubt seen, some of you, perhaps many of you have experienced, that when a soldier comes back from deployment, there's overwhelming joy and excitement and hugs and kisses. I imagine coming home from a long deployment and there's no one to greet you. You take an Uber home and, I'm home! No response. Or worse, ah, get out of here. We don't want you here. The heart tears at the thought of being unwelcome in your own home and being rejected. And yet that's exactly what happened with Christ. Sure, there were moments where it sure seemed like people were responding and welcoming Christ, especially when he was healing and feeding and it was easy for people to accept him and even want to make him king. But when they realized that he would not meet their demands, they rejected him. You know, sometimes we wonder how could the Pharisees convince the crowds to turn against Jesus, whom they had praised just a few days earlier? Well, it wasn't very difficult. They just showed him, showed the crowds, this is not the Messiah that you were looking for. One of the most haunting declarations in the Bible, at least in my opinion, is found in John 19 when the people call for the crucifixion of Jesus and Pilate is trying to rescue Jesus out of their hands. And it says in verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
And Pilate says to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. Complete and utter rejection of their Messiah. The chosen people of God, the people of whom Paul says in verse, chapter 9, verse 4, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. These people who were prepared by John the Baptist did not receive the Messiah. They rejected him. They were in the best position to receive him. They had all the information. They witnessed his glory and signs and wonders and teaching. And they didn't just turn away from him. They turned against him. Beloved, when you share the gospel with someone and they reject it, don't think that if you could only explain it better, they would believe. Maybe if you were more passionate or more thorough or simpler or clearer, then they would believe. Maybe if you had the answers to their questions or could defend against their objections, then they would believe. That is not true. Now, it's true that we can grow in our clarity and our ability to explain and defend the truth, but it's not true that the reception of the Christ depends on those things. If Judas could walk with Jesus for three years, hear everything that he taught and see everything that he did, and yet rejects Christ, that tells us that Salvation is not a matter of intellectual understanding or personal experience. If the Jewish leaders, who of all people knew the most about Scripture, and Jesus answered all of their questions and addressed all of their objections, and yet they didn't believe, that tells us that salvation is not a matter of having more Bible knowledge or getting questions answered. Jesus was the greatest teacher that ever lived. He performed countless miracles, experienced by thousands and witnessed by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And they did not believe. Jesus came to his homeland and his own people did not receive him. Let us never think that we can produce faith in Jesus by the strength of our arguments or the clarity of our explanations. Yes, faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, but there's more involved. And that's what verses 12 to 13 tell us. The response to the light that we've seen are ignorance, apathy, and rejection. But sometimes people receive and believe. Look at verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the the will of man, but of God. To receive him and to believe in his name here are really the same reality. In, In receiving Christ, we accept him as Messiah, because we believe that that's exactly who he is. The Bible doesn't teach that we receive Jesus into our hearts. 
but that we bow to Him as Lord. Some people have a kind of superstitious view about the name of Jesus, almost as if His name is an incantation that brings healing or peace or solutions to our problems. But the name of Jesus is who He is. His being and His character. There's no power in the word Jesus. It is the person of Jesus who powerfully works on behalf of His people. Now to believe here is not merely an intellectual matter of mentally assenting to uh, the truth or, or the statements about Christ, affirming that yes, indeed, He is the Christ. It is a giving of oneself to Him. It's putting ourselves in the posture of submission, ready to follow Him wherever He leads. It's, it's a dying to yourself, acknowledging that He has the authority and the right to direct our lives according to His will. To believe in Jesus is to acknowledge that we are sinners and thus in need of a Savior and in need of a Christ who will take away our sin and reconcile us to God and rule over our lives. The kind of belief that saves doesn't require you to clean up your life and make yourself acceptable to God before you can believe. Nor does it require you to know as much of the Bible as is possible before you believe. No, to believe is to acknowledge your need, entrust yourself to Christ, and then knowing that you've been forgiven by Christ and set free from the power of sin and brought into union with Christ, then we have the joy by the power of the indwelling Spirit to pursue a radically different life in active submission to Christ. Now look again at verse 12 to see what happens when one believes. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is incredible. The right to become children of God? To be a child of God is to be a sharer in all the rights and privileges of being part of God's family. And this includes the right to come directly to God without a priest or a mediator. This includes the right to call God your own father and experience the love and the care that he has to give. This includes the privilege of being a co-heir with the Son of God, such that all that belongs to him also belongs to us. This includes the privilege of being related to all the other children of God around the world and enjoy the blessings of, of connection with one another. There's a whole lot more that we could say about the, the blessing and the joy of being children of God, but I would point you back to the message that we had on Father's Day where we considered what it means to have God as our Father. We've seen the world at large is ignorant and apathetic about Jesus. We've seen that his own people did not receive him, and in fact, they put him to death. If you put the world and the people of God, the Jews, together, there aren't any people groups left. So the question becomes, who are these people who believe? Well, verse 13 gives us the answer. Who were born, not of blood, nor 
of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe are not a people group distinct from the world or from the Jews. They are a people from those two groups who have been given new life by God. Consider how John rules out here any human explanation for those who believe. First, he says that they are not of blood. This is to say that biological descent is is not what produces the new birth. Who your ancestors are, who your grandparents are, who your parents are, has no bearing on your relationship with God. Kids, teenagers, you cannot ride on your parents' faith and think that you will enjoy favor from God. Some of you have been wonderfully influenced by your grandparents. But their belief in Christ has no bearing on your standing before God. You cannot be saved by being born into the right family or being in the right heritage in this world. Second, John says there, who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. This is to say that your will is not the explanation for your salvation. Yes, you must believe. But John says, it's not the exercise of your will that explains your reception of Christ. You cannot will yourself into the kingdom of God. This rules out the concept of so-called free will. Why? Because the Bible does not teach that our will is free. It teaches that it is enslaved to sin. Ephesians 2.3 and Titus 3.3 and many other passages. Third, John says, that who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, this is a little trickier to understand what what John intends here, but the best understanding seems to be that he's referring to man-made systems of religion. Mankind cannot devise a system whereby they can offer salvation if people would follow the necessary steps of their system. And this is what the Pharisees tried to do. And in fact, this is what all false religion tries to do. Do what we tell you and you will have eternal life. But no system made by mankind can bring you to God. They all fail from the start because they fundamentally reject God's word. So your bloodline, your personal will, and your effort to follow man-made religion will fail to explain how it is that some believe. What what is the explanation then? It's, It's at the end of the verse. He says, who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because the world is ignorant and apathetic, and the people of God rejected him, the only way for people to receive Christ is for he himself, God himself, to produce spiritual life and faith in a person. This is 
affirmed by Jesus in John chapter 3, where he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in John 6.63, he says, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then a moment later from that, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father, uh, unless it's granted to him by the Father. Now, this is nothing new. Jesus here is only teaching what is revealed in the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. In the new covenant, God promises that in the future, solely on the basis of his will and not dependent on the repentance of the people, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And it's only after the Lord has done those things in the life of a person that, he, that it says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is the work of God granting life to a person that enables them to see the kingdom of God, the glory of Christ, the wickedness of sin, and their desperate need. This pattern of God's initiating work to produce spiritual life, is followed, uh, which is followed by faith, is also taught in Ephesians 2.4, where Paul says there, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, by, uh, even when we were dead in our transgression, ma made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is why he can say in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Scripture always teaches that God is the actor in salvation. This is called monergistic salvation, meaning it is the work of one. Now, some struggle with this doctrine because it doesn't seem to fit their experience. But I believed, they said, they say. Others struggle with this doctrine because it seems to take salvation out of the hands of sinners. And it's said that makes people robots. Well, to that, I would say, if you take at face value what the scripture says about the true nature of man, if God left salvation in our hands, no one would believe. But all would go to hell gladly in their hostility against God. And to the first point, I would say to you that this doctrine looks at salvation from God's perspective and his work in the spiritual realm. But we primarily experience salvation from our perspective in the physical realm. We heard the gospel. It made sense to us. We recognize that we are sinners. So we put our faith in Christ. This doctrine does not deny that, but it explains why the gospel made sense to us. It explains why we're able to recognize ourselves to be helpless sinners before a holy God and explains that God was the one who gave us capacities through that new life that we did not have before. 
God's work of birthing people into the kingdom of God allows them again to see the glory of Christ and to believe in His name. And that makes Him worthy of praise. And it prevents anyone from boasting in their salvation. Well, this truth enables us to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel far and wide and trust the results to God. This truth allows us to be that faithful farmer who goes out during the day and spreads the seed on the field and then goes to bed all the while the seed grows according to the work and the will of God. This reality keeps us faithful to God's ordained means of evangelism, which is proclaiming the gospel with simplicity and clarity rather than trying to manipulate people through their emotions and excitement of music or unbiblical promises of happiness. Beloved, we have no control over the hearts of people. We can't argue people into the kingdom and we can't convince people to believe in a Messiah that they don't think they need. What we can do, what we should do, is find every and any avenue possible for getting the gospel out and let God save whom he chooses to save. Well, as we walk through the gospel of John again, we'll, we'll see these responses unfold before us. And here John prepares us to understand why the glorious Jesus Christ was rejected and disbelieved. You know, some people say that the a common reason that people don't evangelize is the fear of rejection. I think that's true in many cases. But can we just acknowledge that that is a ridiculous excuse? The fear of rejection did not prevent Jesus from coming to earth. Yes, people are going to reject but it is our joy to proclaim the greatest news of the world and to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we ponder these truths, so many ways that we could respond to it, but Lord, may this Give us great confidence in you. Our confidence when we do ministry, when we preach, when we speak the gospel is not in ourselves. Should not be in our ability to know all the answers. It should only be in you. Lord, let this embolden us and strengthen us to speak the truth, knowing that, yes, many will reject. That's to be expected. But perhaps you will use our faithfulness to bring the light of Christ into the hearts and lives of some. Lord, let us be a, a church that is known for being bold and courageous and clear about the need of sinners. Help us to be faithful, not just collectively as we do formal activities and ministries, but also individually. Thank you for those in our church who provide examples to us, who post prayer requests for the people that they're evangelizing. 
Let that encourage and strengthen us in our own lives and consider whom we can speak to, whom we can proclaim the gospel to. And we ask, Lord, that you would save, that you would redeem, that in the weeks and months and years to come, we would hear of sinners who've been saved by Christ because of the testimony of his people here at Hope Bible Church. We ask these things for the sake of Christ. Amen.